And so I started to really, really think about like, okay, so at the end of the day, did I just do everything I did because I wanted that outcome? Or was I motivated by something bigger? And can I find purpose without finding that, you know, quote unquote, win? Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it just, it led me down a very um, <laughs> existential path. It, it really yeah. made me question a lot of my my beliefs, a lot of my values, a lot of my goals. And I think the biggest realization for me was I have to stop equating my my purpose and my worth with just my professional life. This episode of The Work Ethic is brought to you by Wellbuilt Bikes. Wellbuilt Bikes is a social enterprise working to make affordable, reliable transportation available to everybody. They're doing this by gathering bikes that might otherwise go wasted or taking bikes in as donations, old bikes that might be laying around your garage, which by the way, you can donate to this enterprise by dropping them off at any time that they're open. But they gather these bikes, they rebuild them, uh, making them available for sale, refurbished bikes for sale at really affordable prices, great bikes, super accessible. And they do this so they can take the sales revenue and invest it into an earn-a-bike program so that those with little to no money can also get a bike through a small investment of community service hours, a bit of sweat equity work that they put in to earn their bike. And at the end of this program, they get a bike, lights, lock, helmet, water bottle, really Uh, and a safety training. So everything that they need to be commuters, to get around town, to have access to the rest of the city, its opportunities, its economy, uh, a a really great program. They also offer a full service repair shop on sliding scale so that it's available and accessible to everybody. They invite everybody, whether you earned a bike or bought a bike, or you're just a neighbor that already has a bike and likes to go riding, to ride with them every Tuesday night. There's a group ride at 6.30 that you're all invited to. If you're in Tampa, Florida, their shop is located in University Mall, right next to USF in the Uptown University area. Go check them out. It's at Well Built Bikes on any social platform or bikeshoptampa.com if you want to find their website. Hard work, work. hard work. That's what they say. Hard work, work, hard work. I earn my pay. Hard work, work, hard work. Do it every day. Well, welcome once again to another Work Ethic podcast. I'm sitting here today with Juhi Corey, and she's a uh, old friend of mine that I've recently caught up with. Um, but she's actually over. You're a master's student at Oxford, right? She yes. is a author, actually, of a book um, titled "You Got This," which is kind of a a guide for really winning college. Really, I think targeted to international students, but just new college students in general, right? Um, yeah. a, te- a speaker at TEDx, which um, I still utilize and love this talk. Uh, I-, I think it was titled Let's End Social Entrepreneurship, um, which I- I'm sure we'll dig into a little bit. You have bit a here. really good memory. <laughs> well, I also, I-, I also looked up some of these things. I mean, yeah, I, I remember them, but I also <laughs> rushed up a little bit. And um, yeah, I don't know. What else? Why don't you jump in and kind of flesh out your own bio a little bit for those listening? Who is Juhi? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Thank you so much, John. I'm so glad we got to catch up and I'm so excited to be on your show. Absolutely. Um, so yeah, uh, my name is Juhi. I'm currently uh, a master's student in social policy at the University of Oxford. I'm really, really passionate about impact in the academic sense, in the business world, as well as just in my personal life. I'm 
I've been involved with the social entrepreneurship movement in Florida, in the UK, and then also some a few projects uh, globally. And that's, I think that would be since 2015. It was like my first semester of university. And mm. I, that, that's kind of when I discovered it, it, that social entrepreneurship even existed. Before that, I had no idea that, you know, you could build a life around something that was definitely, you know, you would go, you could make the money, you could do the finance, you know, financial success thing. But at the same time, it was all about really how are you contributing to the planet, to people, um, and I, I, that just that that concept really stuck with me. And since then, I've you know tried to um, do a lot of things in that in that ecosystem. And I think about a year ago, I realized that the the best next step for me would be to be trained on the policy side of these things because. There's a lot of amazing people in the entrepreneurship world, but with social entrepreneurship, I think a key component is you constantly have to com um, collaborate with stakeholders. And a lot of times that includes local governments, national governments, international organizations. And I think my expertise with policy will allow me to better serve the people that I want to help. Man. So, okay. So social entrepreneurship is tied into a lot of that. And, and, and so let's, let's just go, I want to jump to the title of your TEDx talk to end social enterprise. Mm -hmm. And yet you're working within social entrepreneurship. Um, why don't you, for those listening, like, I don't know, explain the, the, the tension that seems to exist with what you're doing and that bold statement from your TEDx talk. Right. So the, the, the whole point of that talk was to, help people understand what social entrepreneurship is. But at the same time, I, I, I'm so frustrated when companies will use social entrepreneurship as like a marketing tool, you know? Mm -hmm. So many people and, and companies will present themselves as, oh, we're so unique and we're doing the world this huge favor by engaging with social entrepreneurship. And that is one of my biggest pet peeves. Yeah. I, I want us to have a world where every business is a social entrepreneurship. So it's no longer like a unique um, mm -hmm. value proposition almost. It's, it's just what we do. And one of the examples that I give is, you know, no company in 2020 would say that they use the internet like they, they wouldn't say that oh we're a digital company like that's not sure. really a thing everyone's on the internet right so it's that same thing principle where i i just want social entrepreneurship to be so ingrained with within the business community that when students at you know universities high schools or right now you know the this whole craze about everyone wants to be an entrepreneur, right? Mm. But I want everyone to be an entrepreneur, not just for that financial side of things, but because they see a need or a challenge in this world and they know that that's something they want to fix or solve. Talk to me a little bit about what you see. Um, I guess there's two things in there. So let's start with mm -hmm. companies. So you're like, yeah, companies are leveraging like doing social good as a marketing ploy, as a marketing tool. We're all familiar with kind of the, the greenwashing tactics or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's come up, it's come up a time or two on this show before. Like, um, 
to me, that's always seemed as this, while it's a pet peeve, it's also an indicator of where we're going, right? It's a way of saying, well, the market mm -hmm. actually insists that we're not just blood sucking corporations that we actually are contributing <laughs> in some way. And like, and like, and for you to go, it's like the picture you paint in my mind, I'm like, it's coming. It's inevitable mm -hmm. that from what I can see. Um, and I think yeah. things like greenwashing or using it as a marketing employee are indicators of that. Um, and then I'd, li I'd like to hear just mm -hmm. your own perspective from your different places in the world and your own studies, like kind of what you see maybe as hopeful or troubling trends maybe in that landscape. You've been thinking right. about this for some time now. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, I, I think it's so, so, okay. So in terms of the way I think about this, right. Yep. If, I think I've had this evolution where at first I was like, oh my gosh, why doesn't anyone know about social entrepreneurship? Like, what is the world doing? And this was very much like around 2015. I was just, it, I was, I had just learned about it and it felt like nobody else knew that this was, you know, this existed. And then it kind of shifted into me being more involved with the community and feeling like, oh, wow, like a lot of people get this, you know, a lot of people understand yeah. and are trying to take steps towards actually making this a reality. But then I look at these large co companies, right? And I just don't think they're doing enough when mm -hmm. it comes to this. Um, mm -hmm. The environmental side, the, I mean, oh my gosh, like it's just, I, I definitely think that we are moving in the right direction. I completely agree with you there. Yep. But I think that the people that need to make the biggest changes, they're moving the slowest yeah, towards yeah. that mm -hmm. worldview. And they're being forced I, to move by the market, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Right. But it's just it, like that, that, that switch needs to happen faster than it's happening, in my opinion. Patience, patience <laughs> is difficult, especially when like <laughs> the planet might hang in peril or something like that, right? Like depending on mm -hmm. the urgency, that is something that we... And so we push and we fight and we kind of work toward that. Now, on the other side of it, you said like, well, you know, I think people want to be like, there's, there's like this trend. People want to be like entrepreneurship is cool. People want to be entrepreneurs and you want to like, okay, mm -hmm. cool. There's a financial upside, but like, think about purposes in the world. My own experience with entrepreneurship came on the other side of things where I actually was more married to a problem or a people in our community where I was like, Mm -hmm. all my, I have all these homeless friends and this is horrible. I got to figure something out. Right. There was a, and so it was like social first in a way. And like, we didn't do any, I just right. raised money as a nonprofit, frankly. Like we started out, I was like, I just was like, oh, I'll be the representative panhandler and we'll figure out how to like make something <laughs> out of this. But over time, and my realization is for-profit nonprofit mm -hmm. dichotomy is going to have to change as well. Like the nonprofit yeah. fundraising is not sustainable and the for-profit, mm -hmm. like let those people do the social good is not sustainable in another way. Exactly. And those need to kind of merge into a new thing, which I know is like at the sweet spot of what you talk about. But like, mm -hmm. I still think like I see a lot of entrepreneurial initiative that takes place outside of making money in maybe the social mm -hmm. sector, you know, innovation right. around whatever problems. And then, but then I want to hear like, you're like, but then there's the people that, I just want to be an entrepreneur, make money. It's cool, mm -hmm. whatever, like be my own boss right. and you're trying to like, I don't know, talk to me about your experience with whether it be students or friends like that, those demographics mm -hmm. and just kind of what you see in the, 
in the world of entrepreneurship. Yeah, for sure. I I completely agree with everything you just said. That that dichotomy between the nonprofit and the for profit like motives that people have. I th- and that's that's why I think you and I both love social entrepreneurship so yeah. much because it's that combination of those two worlds. And in addition to that, I also think that we we just need to, you know, when 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 we're teaching people about business and when we're teaching people these basic concepts at an early age, it needs to not just be about that financial motive. Mm-hmm. It needs to be that, oh, if you want to be an entrepreneur, that means you're going to solve an important problem in this world and you're mm-hmm. going to help people. Like framing it like that. So I actually spoke to um, a class of, I think they were third graders maybe. I love and it. this was back in uh, Tampa actually. And oh my gosh, it was just the the most adorable experience because these kids were just so excited and, you know, they were asking me all these questions about what I do and what, you know, what advice I have for, you know, these little babies. Um, and I was just like, you know, like impact, like it, it's really about like at the end of the day, helping people. And they, it, it was just like, you know, they, they don't, they were just starting to understand what these types of things meant, like what a bi- business, what business even means, you know, at the, the most basic level. But when yeah. you frame it as like business is about helping people, business is about taking care of society, taking care of the planet, like these types of things, then they're automatically like, oh, wow, okay, like that's what I want to do when I grow up. Because at that age, so much of our values education for these kids is focused on you should be, you know, helpful, you should be kind to others. So when we ask them things like, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? Like, it shouldn't just be, oh, I want to be an engineer or I want to be a teacher. Like, it, it should be, I want to help people, these, you know, specific people. Like, why do you want to be an engineer, for example? Because mm-hmm. I want to create products or software that can help people. I want to teach, you know, people from backgrounds that may not have had access to the same resources I do. And I want to teach these kids, like, the, the, that making impact just such an everyday part of life. I think that would really, really help bridge that gap between the for-profit and non-profit worlds. Cause I, I really think it's, <laughs> I, it, I, I think this is the cynical part of me, but mm-hmm. I do think that our best chance at making social entrepreneurship obsolete is by using education and, and helping transform what these things mean to the younger generations versus mm-hmm. just focusing on, you know, quote unquote adults. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. Investing that kind of term. I mean, cause it's interesting, even the language itself, like you'll, it's shifting mm-hmm. sand. It's like, we're, it's emerging language, impact investment, social entrepreneurship. Right. These, these things are coming into being and there's language kind of forming around these things, but you're right. Like as we find ways to articulate it, and, and I think the, the reference to the, like, you don't hear a company talking about being online. I'm like, that's, mm-hmm. that's a brilliant way to phrase that because, you know, in the nineties, that was fairly unique, right? It was like, oh, right. okay, that's, that is something to be said. Like maybe today having a social cause mm-hmm. is something to be said, but in a similar way, the kids today, those third graders could have run circles around you on the phone, probably right? Like mm-hmm. th- their interface with the technology that we use because they've been 
brought up it's been their environment all along and so i think you're absolutely right Right. kind of we we kind of shape and impact the world to come investing in the youth now talk to me about your youth so um i try to ask so so you know this show is called the work ethic and one of the things i'm interested Mm -hmm. in exploring is our relationship with work so we all have things mm-hmm. we work on. Uh, we work on relationships. We work on jobs. We work on projects. We work on an education. We, we work on all kinds of things, right? They're not always just employment. Um, and I'm right. curious, like for you and your own relationship with work, if you were to think back to your earliest memories of work, like as work <gasps> took on meaning as a word, like how did you come to mm-hmm. understand what work was as far back as you're able to remember? Yeah. Ah, wow. I think to me, it it signified a lot of lack of um, almost family time because my understanding of work was, you know, built on upon my parents uh, and they both they went away to work. Right. That's what you're saying. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So, yeah. I'm, I'm, so my dad's an entrepreneur. My mom works for the government. So two very different job profiles. Interesting. But it's, but my dad, you know, wouldn't come home until 10 o'clock because he was at the office. Some nights when I was, I mean, I, I can vividly remember, you know, I was maybe four or five years old, like really young. And my mom, she works for the Indian government. And at the time she was working in a position that required her to have like overnight assignments and things mm. like that. So I remember going to sleep with like a piece of clothing, you know, that she owned because I just missed her so much. And I just, I wanted, you know, to sleep next to my mom and she wasn't there. And so I think I internalized this Mm. idea that if you, if you want to, you know, working hard to me at that, at that time. And I think to a large extent, even now, um, it still does mean that sacrifice and, and trying to find that balance and, and, I almost feel like the default is not being able to find the balance. And that's actually something I've been thinking about a lot um, because what I'm studying right now is social policy and my, my, I guess the, the, the part of social policy that interests me the most is the future of work and what types of policies we need once work may even become obsolete. And that's really like, if, if in my, if in my head, all, of work means not having time for anything else and if it means you have to work really hard and you don't you don't, you can't have that balance if if that's just taken away then what do we do mm. man there's so much in there you touch on so many topics that i think are important <laughs> for the for this for this show even so like well one the idea of like i came to realize that working hard was sacrifice and that somehow Mm -hmm. there's a relationship between work and sacrifice. Like I'm, I'm giving something up today because of an aim for something for tomorrow, which is like, even in the old religious idea of sacrifice, like I burn Mm -hmm. this up to God because I hope for a blessing in this way or a path to this or an answer to this. And yet it means the same thing in the way that we work or strain or struggle towards something. It's a really good perspective. And the idea that you're saying, I'm trying to find balance. Um, talk to me a little bit about that idea. Like, like dig into that a little bit. The idea of, cause yeah. I mean, the, the, the term people throw around is like work-life balance. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like, uh, and 
I'll just tell you, I'll show my hand from the beginning. I have some trouble with that because I haven't, I, I don't like the idea mm -hmm. that I don't work is not something I live to do. Like I work is a part of who I am. So, and this will blend into the idea of, like you said, work becoming obsolete. There's something in me that I, I really want to dig into the idea of the future of work, but I have a conviction that work is a gift to mankind. Like mm -hmm. work is something we're created to do. And even if you don't have a job, you should work on something. You should sacrifice for something, right? And so, yeah. so, so I, I don't love the idea that it's like I work so I can go live and that they're held mm -hmm. in tension. Like work isn't life and my life isn't work. Right. You know what I mean? But, but I get the idea that I could sacrifice everything I am to something to a fault mm -hmm. and lose my family, lose my relationships, lose what matters. Right. It makes life life. Um, talk to, I've just unpacked the concept a little bit about that balance yeah. that I'm trying to find that you've been thinking about. So, yeah. Um, I think it's a, a big part of this started when I was working like 16 to 20 hours. Um, 20, it was between like end of 2018 to the first quarter of 2019. I was working um, in the political world and I, I honestly can say that I gave it my all and the outcome was not one I would have liked. It was mm -hmm. heartbreaking for me because I felt like I had truly like worked so hard and this my whole life, like I was told that if you work very hard and you do all the right things, yeah. then you're supposed to get what, you know, what you've worked for. That's, that was like, it's what I built my life on that, that principle. Right. And I just followed that, did that. And the outcome was just, I mean, just, it, it just tore me apart, you know? Mm. And that's something like that experience of just not that, that principle not coming to life. It made me really, really think like, wow. So if, if I could work, you know, really hard, sacrificed a lot of my personal time for mm. that. And at the end of the day, like it didn't feel like it was worth it because mm. I didn't get what I wanted. And so I started to really, really think about like, okay, so at the end of the day, did I just do everything I did because I wanted that outcome or was I motivated by something bigger? And can I find purpose without finding that, you know, quote unquote win? Mm -hmm. um, and it, it just, it led me down a very, um, <laughs> existential path it really yeah. made me question a lot of my my beliefs a lot of my values a lot of my goals and I think the biggest realization for me was I have to stop equating my my purpose and my worth with just my professional life I think yeah. I think for me like since I started university which is also um, when, you know, I, I really started thinking about work and my personal like self-confidence, self-esteem, like all these things. And I was good at university. So it, that was a big part of who I was. Mm -hmm. um, I was doing, you know, volunteer work. That was a big part of who I was. I was doing public speaking. That was a big part of who I was. But at the end of the day, I, I have to detach myself from what those things mean on paper or what they mean and like not like like a statistical sense almost you know yep 
And I have to create a story that can encompass all those things, but it can't just be about those things. That makes sense. <laughs> it, it, it's, makes perfect sense. And it's, it's an important and powerful journey to have to go on. And I'm curious. Um, so you asked this question, am I motivated by something bigger, something other than mm -hmm. that big win? Um, and I can't have my identity wrapped up in just these accolades or accomplishments or something like that. Um, and it sent you on this existential journey, but mm -hmm. have you, have you emerged from that? Do you feel like you have some, some answers? Like, like, is there something you've really sunk your teeth in about that story about that process? Yeah, I think after, so, I mean, I've been dealing with some mental health issues since that whole thing happened. Um, and just from talking to my therapist and just, just people, you know, who are older and wiser than I am, good to, good to <laughs> um, just talking yeah. to them. I think one thing I realized was how important making time for family is for me. Yeah. And, you know, I'm just, I'm, I'm not at that age where I see myself getting married in the next year or so. Like, you know, I, I, I don't, but when I do, and that, that's, I don't, I, I don't want to be the type of person who is so wrapped up in their professional life that they would sacrifice that personal side of things. My parents, um, I don't, I don't force, you know, they live in a different country, but I'm so attached almost to them, which growing up with them, I don't think I was, but mm. now it's like, I, I talk to my family almost every day. Awesome. It's just, it's, it's this, I don't, I'm just I'm so it means a lot to me to make that to to specifically you know make time for those people in my life and yep. I have friends that you know feel like family to me and I would always make time for them as well it's just I don't think I I'm I'm committed I guess to the relationships in my life and I'm committed to making sure that that is the priority and I know no matter what, you know, what I do in the professional sense, it's going to be impact oriented because I couldn't, I, I don't think I could, you know, live any other way, but even then, and I think in some ways, especially for those of us who are impact oriented, it can be very um, easy for us to feel like, oh, I can give this, you know, 16 to 20 hours because I'm not doing this for myself. I'm doing this for this bigger cause, but we're doing even that at while sacrificing a lot of other things in our personal lives. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. And it's so good to hear you kind of like, well, that you're keeping up with your family as much as you have. And you've kind of put, you know, any, anything in our lives, any good thing even can become horrific, can become terrible, mm -hmm. right? If it takes over, if it becomes are everything right and and steals us away from right. other things that are important um so let's i want to oh actually that leads me really well into it so i try i try to ask everybody this question i usually save it closer to the end of our conversation but based mm. on what you just said i feel like this is a good time to ask you because all that you're saying seems like it may have changed your thoughts about this word or the definition of this word but how would you define success Okay. So it's definitely changed. You were very, very <laughs> correct. 
I think now the way I define success is having a life where my story is focused on the relationships in my life. It's focused on growth and it's focused on me evolving as a person, my thoughts and my beliefs and my values evolving. I'm, it's no longer tied to these. And, and, you know, don't get me wrong. Like I have goals that are very, you know, like I have to do this by this age, like in the next five years, I want to do this. I still have those goals. Of course you do. But I don't, I, <laughs> but I don't want my story to be defined yeah. by those goals. That's right. And that, that to me is like, is being able to detach myself and, and have a story without those, you know, su success, like in the traditional sense, um, those qualifiers. Talk to me about, cause I'm curious. One of the things I'm interested in that is it seems to me that you use the word journey and there's relationship mm -hmm. growth evolving rather than outcome success mm -hmm. win. And those are very different. And there's something like the process like that. Right. You're, you're like, it's more like it's a story of a process of an evolution of a development mm -hmm. rather than an accomplishment. Right. Like, right. Which, which seems like well-framed to, I don't know, love yourself, take care of yourself, be patient with the time it takes to deal with losses that come along the way. It's all part of your formation, right? Making mm -hmm. you kind of who you are. Yeah. Um, now you, you also use the word, whatever I do, it's going to be oriented around impact. And I'm curious to put those two things together. So it's mm -hmm. about relationship growth, evolving, and it's about impact. Um, I just unpack impact for everyone listening. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and then, mm -hmm. and then how does that maybe impact your relationships impact your development mm -hmm. and those kind of things yeah. yeah yeah i think it's i mean i would not claim to have all those answers and i would not you know claim to have it all figured out but i think the way i i think about impact is in the activity you know any any activity that i'm doing has the the i guess the the reason i'm doing it is because I, I can very clearly state how it's going to make a positive difference in what, you know, whether that's an academic, you know, assignment or something, or if it's an event, if it's a project, you know, that I'm working on, if it's, a, if it's politics again, then it's like that community, um, whatever it may look like, it, it's really about like, I can state very clearly why I'm doing it and how it relates to a larger positive difference difference that I can make. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. It's like the, the, it is the, the aim that you're, you're setting your eyes on and going, if I can move mm -hmm. the needle in this place or that place. Um, right. Let's circle back for a moment to your parents. Um, I thought mm -hmm. it was really interesting. So you said dad's an entrepreneur and mom worked for the government which in and of itself is just, that makes a lot of sense knowing you. Like <laughs> it just does. Isn't that crazy? It's like, super crazy. Go I on. Had, yeah. I never like, you know, thought about that until I, I had to give a speech for something and I had to talk about like how my, um, my childhood and, and all of those things kind of made me the person I am. And I was just, you know, thinking about things and, I was like, oh, wow. I mean, 
I never, you know, growing up, I was like, I never want to do what my parents are doing. And I'm literally at the intersection of those two things. Like, yeah. like just like literally in the middle. And it, it's amazing because I get that, you know, entrepreneurial drive and that spirit from my dad for sure. Um, and my mom, like, you know, she really cares about, you know, like, um, the, the policy side of things, like the, the, you have to be a very meticulous person, I think, to work in government and like she, she works in tax. So it's a very, you know, specific thing. And I, I do really care about the role of government. I, I'm not one of those people who think, you know, the government should not exist. But I, and I also don't think like private companies shouldn't exist. And I think I'm at this very, very specific middle that they've both you know in so many ways inspired and now i'm like helping them realize that it's not just those two worlds there is that middle as well mm. can you tell me about what dad did as an entrepreneur oh yeah 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 so my i mean his longest running business is in telecommunications it's mm -hmm. in cable networking and internet but he's also done some land development, resort management, a few other things on the side. Um, but yeah, his, his telecommunications business, I, I want to say is maybe 32 years old. Wow. Yeah. Wow. yeah. So he's still running that um, in Bombay. Like just, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. He, and he do that from his, like, was that the majority of his life? Was he mm -hmm. kind of entrepreneur? Yeah. Yeah, so he, um, it's funny because I, I, you know, growing up, I would always ask him, like, you know, daddy, like, what did you study? What is, what is your, you know, degree? And I didn't know what that meant, but I knew people had degrees. So yeah. I was like, you know, what, what was it? Because um, my mom, like, had a very, it was very specific. Like, I know exactly what she did. But my daddy, like, you know, he was just in business. So I was like, how do you just do that, you know? Yeah. Um, and he, he told me like, oh, I studied botany in school, like, you know, for his degree. And I was just like, botany, like, Interesting. It, it's so, you know, it makes no sense with what he's actually doing and has done for a majority of his life. And since, you know, ever since he told me he studied botany, anytime we'd be out in nature, I would point to a random tree and be like, daddy, what's that one? And he has no idea. Like he has, <laughs> he has absolutely no idea. And I'm convinced he, like you know, probably just never went to class. Yeah. But but you know, it's just it um it, it helped me realize like it's it's your education doesn't have to necessarily be what you study. Um, sorry, what you work in. Like it, it can really those two worlds don't necessarily have to be the same. And I think in a lot of ways, if they aren't the same, they can really inform each other. Yeah, um, that's right. That that was my experience as well. I think just with my college. What I, did you study? Well, I ended up in religious studies because. Oh. So I. I started as an art major cause I was like artist my entire life. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Oh, I'll just keep doing that. Like I, I had already done like a graphic art degree. And then I went, when I went to university, I was like, all right, I'm mm -hmm. going to, I'm going to stay in art. But then you have to go back to the beginning. Cause it wasn't like credits from a tech school transferred in. So I'm like back in oh, draw, drawing one and bored out of my <laughs> mind. And I was like, I don't think I can do this. And my experience up until that point, And it always was like, it's very hard to make money as an artist. Mm. I loved making art, 
you know, I was a caricature artist at Bush Gardens and I did, I did a bunch of little gigs and stuff, but like, I, yeah. I knew like, this is going to be a tough thing to make your way with. The starving artist mm -hmm. thing is very real. <laughs> and, um, and so I, I knew I wanted to change my major. Um, and around mm -hmm. that time I had like a kind of a personal epiphany and I was really in a place where I was like, I, I am most interested in like what they would call like questions of ultimate concern. I want to know mm -hmm. like what the philosophers are after, what the religions are after, like all of them, like what are the different religions saying about right. what matters the most. And so I, I took religious studies in some sense, cause it was the only class I had taken a couple of religious studies classes and it was the only class that I didn't want to skip and that held mm -hmm. my attention and that I actually read the books for. So I was like, Oh, I should probably do that. Cause everything else I'm going to fail because I can't pay attention. Mm -hmm. um, and there is some overlap kind of in the work that I do. But for the most part, I feel like the tools that I got there were more helpful for just thinking. Like I learned how to think. I learned how to right. look at a system or analyze something or mm -hmm. hear ideological undertones of concrete statements, things like that. Like that yeah. religious studies gives you tools for like getting at cosmology behind practice or something. And I'm like, our shopping malls convey a ideology that there's a deep seated religious belief behind our society or our corporations or whatever. And so for me, like all of that's trying to translate it over and hugely inform that. But I, it's not like I was, I mean, there are no jobs for religious studies unless you're going to go <laughs> teach religious studies. Right. right? That's it. Yeah. You like educate yourself to educate other people in something that they can't use anywhere, but that's helpful everywhere. And so that's kind right. of, it's just, I think humanity. That's Wow. I, I love the way you described it. It's just teaching you how to think mm -hmm. and how to analyze the world. And honestly, I wish every student left university or whatever education they choose, I wish they left it with those skills because I think you can really do whatever with that. You can, yeah. you can really make it in, in that sense of you can understand how the world works. I think a lot of people would think more critically about the news, about politics, about just, just the whole, you know, the, the world around them, if they knew how to, I think our current education systems don't do a great job at making sure everyone leaves with that skill. And I think that's contributing majorly to a lot of the problems we see. I, I think you're exactly right. And I actually think it relates a bit to what you were saying about your own journey and breaking mm -hmm. away from like outcomes and success. Um, on the last episode, I actually talked to a guy that's kind of an educator, teacher, mm -hmm. tra trainer, not in the like traditional university sense, but in business, he's a trainer. Uh -huh. But he was talking about learning how to think as a, or the process as opposed to like the answer. And in a lot of ways, it's like education's built to go, I have the answer. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know, for me, somehow that relates to what you were saying about the outcome. Like, it's like, if I could just get the accomplishment or the notch in my belt or the degree or the, the plaque, then I did it as opposed right. to being someone that was developed by the process of the doing, like, that's nice. There's a trophy or a reward or not mm -hmm. like cool. There might be an yeah. answer to the problem, but the process of figuring something out or learning how to think or mm -hmm. being an engaged human being with purpose in all places in my life that that transition in all of these arenas feels like deeply related that we're just too we're too uncomfortable not having answers or not having success in that 
kind of yeah, traditional yeah. way or whatever. And absolutely. Uh, now, what about you? So you grew up in a household with an entrepreneur as a father and your mom's kind of in government. And, and then uh, what were your earliest years? Like, did you start anything? Did you work anywhere? What are your, like, like in the employment arena or even the hustle arena? Like what, just talk right. to me about whether it was a early sport or <sighs> sale um, or. <laughs> so I have to put this in context because mm-hmm. I grew up in, Bombay, okay. middle class, upper middle class family. Mm-hmm. In that world, to allow your child to work mm. in any sense is deemed as a failure on you as a parent. Okay. So in that in that context, if if your your child is working, whether or not they want to, right? If your child is working when, like in in the societal sense, they should be studying and that's all they should be doing, you've failed or you're not able to provide for the family. Like it's not, it's just not a thing. I, Mm -hmm. I didn't work, not, I didn't know a single person that did. It was just not culturally a thing. And, you know, Mm -hmm. I grew up watching American and British movies, TV shows. And I was always, you know, curious, like these kids would have, have these lemonade stands yeah, and, yeah. and it was just, it was so normal. And, you know, as a child, sometimes you want something nice and your parents say no. And I was like, okay, then let me just get a job. You know, I'll go. There's, there was like my favorite um, cake shop in the world is yep. like a two minute walk from where I grew up. And I was like, oh, let me just go there. I'll, I'll work there, you know? And my parents were just like, what? Like, they were so shocked that I would even, you know, ask something like that of them. They were just like, what do you mean? Like, are we not working hard enough to provide for you? Like, they were just so upset, you know, because Mm -hmm. I had said something like that. And it was just, I think it's very, um, it's a very cultural thing. So to answer your question, um, no, I I did not work. My first, I guess, work experience was doing a voiceover in an animated movie in India. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. It was a it was a social campaign type movie. One of my parents' friends, he has um, like a production company, and he basically, I think it was like a government contract that he had, and he had to make a movie about how like how kids can learn about safety. And this this story was specifically about um, like a big flood that came to a village, and he created this character named Juhi, and I voiced it, and it was um, it was that was my first work experience. I was you know I would spend hours in the studio doing doing that, and it was just it was very fun. <laughs> that is so cool. Do you is that does that exist? Like it's online somewhere? Yeah, but it's not in English. So I don't care. Please send me a link to that. <laughs> hey, the, the, the actual animation, the character, yeah. Juhi, the character, is it good? Like the drawing, is it a good, does it I look mean, it's, cool? It's, it's an animation, you know, so it's very, you know, like. How is that not your profile thing. picture everywhere? How is because that? Because it wasn't physically, your, your physically, avatar. This, physically, the character wasn't based on me. It was sure. like chubby. So it doesn't, oh, I, don't, ch- I don't like, I mean, I, I just don't relate to it. Sure, it sure, look sure. Like me, but. sure. Oh, that's so cool. Yeah. Though. 
Oh, I would love to see it though. I don't care if it's not in English. I would love to see that if you yeah. see it. No, I'll, I'll, awesome. I'll find the, I, I mean, last time I checked, it was years ago, but it was on YouTube. So I'll look for it and Please. I will send it. That is so, so cool. Um, I'm so. curious. Okay. If, if, let me try to ask you a question that mm. uh, is based on what you were saying about the, the cultural kind of mm -hmm. situation in India. Um, so, okay, for, let me lay out, there's a template I use a lot and I've actually used India, maybe wrongly, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it, my understanding, I've used it this way. So, so I use this template a lot. I actually got it from a book by Bryant Myers. It's called Walking with the Poor. Super okay. important book to me. And it's about development work, right? Mm -hmm. And so what he'll say is he'll draw like four circles, concentric circles. And that center circle will be like needs. So like concrete needs, like you look around the community and someone needs water, needs food, needs clothes. Like mm -hmm. they're very obvious and you know what they are. But he's like, he would say, when you see a need, there's an underlying issue. So maybe that issue is like a lack of access or a lack of ownership or so there's something deeper behind it. Um, and so this is something like, even with what I do with well built bikes, it's about access, right? It's about like helping right. you get, cause you can meet a lot of your own more basic needs. Okay. But behind every issue, there's systems. So mm -hmm. this could be the laws, the policies, the things that you're interested in studying. And actually, we could probably go pretty deep in this a little bit. But like, this is legislation, but it's also culture, mm -hmm. right? There's cultural right. rules, norms in place, like you were referencing. Like, what you were saying was, well, there's a system in place that played itself out in a concrete situation in my life when I wanted to be at the cake shop or whatever, right? Like, there there's something that need bridge or, but like I lived in a reality and in this metric, they use the word ideology, which is an okay word. I, I like to use like metaphysics, but it's like the philosophy behind everything. So behind the system, there's a belief. Um, and so one example, like in the United States of America, that's easy to use is there was a belief of white male supremacy. This is an ideology. Mm -hmm. And then you can look at the systems that were built. And the legacy plays itself out in our prison system, education system, all these different systems. And another example that I have used when talking about this is India because of the caste system, right? Mm -hmm. So there, there exists a system that is built upon a belief, but that plays itself out in very real and concrete situations and needs in the community. Right. And as you were talking about one, as you were talking about that, I thought, oh, this is, you're a person I should just run this by to go correct yeah. here or where, where am I, like, is this about how it is? But then also just to, I don't know, given that template, um, maybe to muse a little bit on that situation. So not to say this is good or this is bad. You're like, here's a situation that I, I found myself in because right. of that landscape, because of that culture. Um, given the like, I don't know, the more concrete experience of you and like the underlying ideologies. I'm just curious what thoughts that triggers for you. Yeah. Um, so I guess it, it triggers two very specific things for me. Mm -hmm. um, but to preface, you know, both of those, uh, I have to say, at least in big cities, including Bombay, the caste system isn't a, a prevalent thing. Mm -hmm. um, not, not since I've, you know, <laughs> Been, pretty dated uh, right yeah mm -hmm. but it doesn't it, it wasn't you know like my grandfather yeah his generation 
the caste system was a very real thing. Yeah. And that's, that's, so that's the, the first situation that comes to my mind because he was someone that was born in the lowest caste system. He was born in a village. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I want to say he was maybe either the eldest or the second um, child in the family. And their whole family was, you know, working on, on this farm for not for money, but just for food, for rice. And his, he, all he wanted to do as a child was study. Like he wanted to go to school. He wanted to study. And his parents were just like, no, because if you go to school during these hours, who's going to work on your behalf? Mm. We have to feed the family. And so he was like, okay, I'm going to do both. He used to wake up at three in the morning to go and work. His mom would, you know, start her shift at maybe, let's say, six o'clock. He'd be done with his, you know, an entire day's work in those three hours, go back home, make the trek all the way to school. And then when he reaches school, he isn't even allowed to sit inside the classroom. Mm -hmm. He was made to sit outside the classroom based solely on the fact that he was from a certain family. You know, he just... He was a lower, like the lowest caste person in that, mm-hmm. um, in that institution. But to his credit, I mean, this man like had no resources, no resources had, he would, you know, borrow textbooks. He would, he wasn't even allowed to sit inside the classroom and yet would ace every exam that mm-hmm. he took. Mm-hmm. And the principal of the school was actually the person that realized that and saw that. and when he got you know a bit older he said he was he went to my grandfather's parents and was like i want this kid to study like i will sponsor his future education we'll send him to the big city like this you know he can actually get out of this situation and do something for himself and they were very hesitant because you know it takes away an adult that would be working in the farm with them and somehow the principal was able to convince them and he paid for my grandfather to get his further education. Um, at some point from, you know, smaller, big city, he came to Bombay. And that's really where, I mean, he was working, he was newly married, and he was also studying on the side, um, doing all these things just so he could get into like an entry level position in the government. Mm. and. I mean, after years of, you know, doing all that and and really struggling, he was, he got the position, um, worked his way up and retired as one of the commissioners in um, the income tax department. And he is just, I mean, he's testament, you know, for me, like when when I think of like why I want to study and, and what I want to do in terms of impact, it really goes back to like, how passionate he's been about education my whole life. Like as long as I can remember, I mean, you know, he came from that family, right? But he had two kids, my mom and her brother, uh, my uncle's a doctor. My mom works for the government. She's at a really, you know, um, good position. And he was able to, you know, make that happen. Like in two generations, I'm at Oxford, you know, like, and I, I really like, I think about it being so, so much of this, just going back to his dedication yeah. to change his life story, give his kids a good life, and then passing on those values to them. 
that would then transfer onto me. Um, and I think that, you know, speaks to the, the concentric circles that you were talking yeah. about, where it's like he made that change, right, in the most, um, in, in the outermost circle. Yeah. And that has really, like, come into um, all the others and, and shaped how all of our lives are turning out. That's such a powerful story. And it does your your mom is in the same mm-hmm. kind of department of government. Is that right? Yeah. She kind mm-hmm. of followed in his footsteps then. Into she that. did. And the funny part is growing up, she was always like, I want to work for the government, but I never want to do what he's doing. Sure. Like she was, she was just like, I, you know, cause, cause he was like there. Like, <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. At least we know I'm not adopted. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I was like, there's a, there's a very cool story here. That's awesome. Uh, yeah. So she was she was adamant not wanting to do what he did and and now you know she's loving it. She's she started she got that job when she was 21 and now she's completed over 25 years of working there. So Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I I it's interesting to me like that thank you for sharing that. It's such a powerful <gasps> story. And, and it's, you're right. It's like, he had to defy, not just like the immediate, like system or rule, Mm -hmm. like he had to deal with these systems that are in place, but had to believe a different story. Right. Because how easy is it to believe what you're told? Like, especially in a, in a religious system that says, this is what God intended for you to try to do something other than the the life mapped out for you is in some sense a sin, right? Like he had to yeah. get his hands on, on a different story altogether and, and talk about impact, change the world. Like your world is what it is because of this defiant young grandfather that said, mm-hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to lock my eyes onto something better. Um, and, and, and it's interesting too, to think about the, you know, for me to reflect on now, like, or you, mm-hmm. like the work that you do, we never, it's so hard to think generationally to think like, right. you don't even have kids. I don't have kids, but to think mm-hmm. like six, seven generations out, like what could the world look like oh my God. if we're faithful to the right kinds of stories today? Mm-hmm. And this, I think maps into what you're saying, like what we're raising our kids to think about how they're thinking about business, what they're aiming at. Uh, but that's such a rich legacy. And in some sense, as you talked about, I mean, that story, honestly, next to your like accolades, you know, Mm -hmm. I was, you know, I did this, did that. I mean, it's hands down, like, which is more meaningful. They're not even comparable. No. Like in terms of your identity, (laughs) who you are, what you have Mm -hmm. within you, it's like, to carry on in the process of development, like of grandpa's legacy, mom's legacy, what dad invested in me and such, man. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's such a, that's such a beautiful story. Uh, You would love him. He is just the most jovial, loving person. Like he's just because of the pandemic, you know, he's not really able to get out of the house and he's in his eighties and he's still the type of person that, will you know go downstairs for a walk and he knows every um vegetable vendor in the in the community like there's a there's a coconut water cellar under the building they live in and he just you know all he has to do is just call these people and 
they just they love him so much like they'll just come home and you know deliver these things because he's built those relationships and he's never once have I heard him speak about someone from a place of like authority I'm not sure that's the right word but but I've 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 just never seen him talk about someone as being less than like he's above somebody yeah he's he's just I mean I I can't think of a single time that that's happened you know in India like most people um in the middle class upper middle class will travel places using you know cabs and every single time I've sat in a cab with him he started a completely normal conversation with the driver which is just not something people do it's Mm. not it's just I don't think I've ever started a conversation with Mm. a cab driver if I was in the cab my just by myself but oh my gosh him like never has he not he's just like love exudes out of him and I just I'm so grateful that you know I have I have that type of a role model in my life and he's just he's so great <laughs> that's incredible and and as you were telling this story it didn't even occur to me that grandpa's mm-hmm. still around but he's still oh yeah yeah oh mm-hmm. that's just such an incredible yeah. thing you still have access and relationship with him and um yeah i man i i yeah i would love to i would love to get a chance to talk to him it sounds like absolutely incredible um so oh, real quick though while we're on that mm-hmm. back to the yeah. like I'm in this upper middle class family. So you kind of started this story out saying, well, first of all, the caste system's changed a lot. It's not what it used to be, but it was for grandpa. And we kind of launched into Mm -hmm. this story, but kind of reflecting on that childhood, whether it's, whether it's related to caste system or not, the cultural constraint Mm -hmm. and the like, like, so like, I don't know, hold that story in juxtaposition with grandpa's story. Like you Mm -hmm. had some restrictions based on culture, based on your parent, right? Yeah. He had some, like, mm-hmm. I don't know, just reflect on that a little bit, like in your own, like what was, yeah. what was going on uh, there? I would, I mean, I don't think I've ever publicly shared this story, but I think, I think thinking about like prejudice in, in a sense, um, yep. the, the story that comes to my mind and it's, it's something that's still hard for me to speak about uh, just because of, you know, as I, as I explain, um, you'll see why, but in India, we don't have different races. So racism isn't a thing, hmm. but the equivalent of that is colorism. Yeah. And the lighter your skin is, the better your chances at life are. Yeah. You get, better you know edu- like just opportunities like people will i mean the skin lightening industry is multi-billion dollar industry just in india i mean globally it's you know even bigger because i think it's a cultural sentiment in a lot of parts of the world yep, but in yep. india i mean it, it like if you look at bollywood celebrities mm. I don't know how how many rows down you would have to go to find someone even with a medium um, skin tone. Mm. So growing up, I was darker skinned. And it was something that family would point out. It was something that strangers would point out. It was something that classmates would point out. Um, it was It was one of those things that, you know, I literally couldn't change about my life. And 
growing up, like I didn't, I never looked at other people that way. So I was very confused as to why people were looking at me that way. You know, mm. it was just not something that was ever like, I see a person and I see a human, you know, like that, that was it. Like it was not, I know in America, this sense of like being colorblind has, has a negative connotation. To sure. it. But in, in my context, it was like, I literally did not like look at that, you know, it was not, um, and I was, I was young enough to not understand what the TV ads were about or what the newspaper, you know, or, or the billboards, like it's, it's everywhere. Like this, this sentiment is, is everywhere. And I just, I never like understood it. And then as I, you know, started growing up and bullying um, was my, my school was a very interesting place. Um, I, I don't know a single person who was not bullied and I don't know a single person who was not a bully. So it was a very weird dynamic. Like it wasn't, you know, this in, I think my understanding of American culture is in schools, there are, like, there are these specific people who bully everyone and everyone's scared of like, you know, these, these, this handful of people. But in India, or at least in my, in my experience, in my school, yep. um, everyone was bully and everyone was a victim. It was just, you know, everyone had their fair chance, whatever. But in, in terms of me, um, a lot of the, the comments or, you know, just, just my experience with bullying for the most part was very much um, about my skin color. And I, I just, I mean... I didn't, I didn't understand how I could, you know, get out of that system. Um, I just, I didn't know there was a way out. Um, and then my, my master plan was to leave the country because mm. if I leave the country, I mean, you know, I think everyone knows that in a lot of countries, especially the U S people do like being tan and people, you know, value certain physical characteristics. So I was like, well, I'll just go, you know, live in a place where people don't care about that stuff, you know? Mm. Um, and it was just, I think it shaped a lot of my um, self, uh, like my, my confidence, my yeah. self-esteem, like what I thought I could do. I mean, when I was growing up, I would have never thought that I could do something that was in a prominent, like um, any type of media role, like I like public speaking, because you know you like people have to see you, right? Like that's like yeah, doing yeah. that. Um, could never imagine having you know done a video series. Could not just just putting myself out there physically, like that was just not something I thought I could do because who's gonna watch me, you know? And uh, I think that that definitely messed with my internal beliefs and, and a lot of that. But moving to America, it was just like a completely different world because nobody pointed anything out. Like people, like the only time people ever commented on my skin color was to tell me that they loved it. You know, yeah. it was just such, it was such a different world. And I think there are still, you know, aspects of that um, that cultural sentiment that that stay with me. Um, but for the most part, like I'm a lot more comfortable in my own, literally my own skin, and I'm a lot more averse to trying to change anything 
about yeah. myself, especially in that context, because growing up, it was like, oh my gosh, like, you know, the, 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 that industry is so dominant. It's like, everyone's like, oh, you should try this product. Oh, you should try this treatment. And, you know, like, I didn't know any better. I tried a few of those and it was sure. just like a horrible experience. I was just like, why am I doing this to myself, you know? Mm. And now it's just like, I want to take care of myself. And, yeah. you know, like, I'll, I'll use moisturizer and things like that. But I don't, I can't think of um, a single time in the last five, six years that I've ever wanted to purchase a product because it promised to lighten my skin or something like that. Yeah, that's such a, that's, thank you for sharing that. And it's, it's, I think people all over the world, um, I mean, like you said, racism, colorism, that, mm -hmm. that, and it even goes back to my illustration of like the ideology of white male supremacy, the thing that has wreaked havoc on mm -hmm. the world. I mean, that's a great way to illustrate that that plays its out in systems and cultures, right. products and services, issues and access that come down to like, concrete situations in a very specific individual's life and and I'm 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 really happy to hear like you've you've I don't know come to know your own beauty and to cherish your own beauty and be like I'm I'm I, and I'm curious actually cuz you you did a lot of public speaking you do a lot of for mm -hmm. you and I didn't even mention this in the earlier part but you mentioned the video series so it was um mm -hmm. Juhi approved. Is that what it was? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Why don't you, I, so like, it, maybe it's a clunky transition from what you just shared, but it's important. Like one, I want to hear about mm -hmm. that, but also like how maybe you, how you came to like find the courage to go, mm -hmm. I'm going to, I'm going to put my face on the internet. I'm going to stand up in front of this audience. I'm going to like that. Cause for a lot of like public speaking, is yeah. what most people put at the top of their list of like, I'd rather be like, <laughs> which I don't understand because I love it, but I'd rather be tortured to death, you know? And I'm like, not me. I'd rather speak. <laughs> like, that'd be much better. But for some people it is. Oh, and I'm curious, God. like if you carry with you this like self-doubt or this thing that had mm -hmm. been like people that try to beat into your head over time. And then you, mm -hmm. what in my mind is heroically stood up and spoke out or stood up and, and were able to do that. I don't know. Just, maybe like talk a little bit about that transition, but then share about your video series and kind of some mm -hmm. of those experiences. <laughs> sure. Thank you. Um, I think I, knowing that or not, 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 not knowing, but being told constantly that this was something I couldn't do. I secretly really wanted to do it. You know, uh, I love, uh, yeah. <laughs> <A little bit laughs> I loved having you. that attention. Mm. I loved, I love like, even just, you know, in my school, uh, every morning we had a school-wide assembly and all the, you know, kids are with their classes, everyone's in their line and every day a different class has to present in front of the whole school. And I loved, loved doing that. You know, they'd always pick different, different kids. And I think it was maybe fifth grade when my, my class teacher at the time just loved me. I don't know what I might, like, I have no idea what I, what I did for her to love me that much, but she put me on stage like 10 times that year. Like basically every time my school was, my class was on stage, I was part of that group, you know? And it was just very like, I, I loved it. And mm. it was just, it just felt like that was, it was something I was always drawn to. 
but I didn't know that was something I could do. Like I just had no idea. So actually the summer before I moved to America, so this was, let's say June, July, 2015, mm-hmm. I had, um, it was like, you know, when I was preparing to go to university and I was like, okay, there are, you know, certain skills that I think I should have. And one of the things I wanted to do was take a public speaking course because I you know, never, never taken one. And I just wanted to see how I would do. Um, I told all my friends about it. I was like, hey, I want to go to this class. Come with me. It's like a two day workshop. It'll be great. And literally every single friend turned me down. Every single friend. So I went to my mom and I was like, mom, I really want to do this. And she was like, great, I'll do it with you. And so we went to this public speaking course together. And I was was, uh, 17 at the time. So I was the youngest person there. And I, you know, I'd never, never really participated in something like that before. And because of, I guess, where I was sitting, I was the first person to speak and I had to introduce myself and I just, I just felt so in my element for Mm. one of the first times I'd ever felt that way. And I felt really comfortable and literally at the end of the workshop, the the people that like run the company and and run these workshops were like, if you weren't leaving for the US, we would have hired you right now. Mm. And that was a very, um, it was, it was like one of those first, best times in my life in my you know the life that I can remember like at 17 I I felt validated in a way and I felt like this is something like I didn't know I was good at but I've just discovered it and people that are good at it can see that in me yeah and um I think that was one of those first experiences and then when I came to university I specifically sought out different opportunities to be involved in that world at the university um, outside of university as well with joining Toastmasters and things like that. And that's how serendipitously um, opportunities like the TEDx talk came about and things like that. But um, to, to <laughs> segue into the Juhi Approved series, mm-hmm. that was actually, um, so I, I, I had, I don't know why, but I think I was on a plane back to Tampa from somewhere. And I was just like thinking about wanting to contribute like in a, in a more public way. I was like, what can I create that is going to bring a smile to people's faces? That's going to, you know, enlighten people about a certain topic or, you know, whatever. And I was like, I'm going to do this series called the hashtag Juhi Approved series. Mm-hmm. And initially it was just, I was going to talk about things I like and, you know, things that I would recommend to people. So I literally got, came back like when I landed the next day I filmed like an intro video and I was like hey guys like this is what I'm going to do I got three episodes in and I hated it I felt like I was just you know talking about things I like and I was like but that's not like impactful like I I just I I couldn't Mm. feel good about just making videos being cute like it was just like that that just wasn't enough for me um, and so I realized like, okay, I think I want to segue into interviewing people that are making an impact in my community. And so I switched from this, you know, five minute video about me just speaking to the camera about something cool, you know, uh, to interviewing someone who I thought was really cool and sharing their story. 
and their work and why I wanted to bring that person on, what social entrepreneurship is, you know, these, these really specific things. And that's how that live uh, interview series started. And I just, I was so, oh my gosh, like since the first time I did that, I just, I felt so, so, so good about it. It was, mm -hmm. it was just one of my favorite, I think, activities that I've done. And it's something I, I do, um, I, I paused because it was my last semester of university and it was just, just too much for me at the time, but I haven't gone back yet. And I, I really want to. I'm also, I, I also know, like, I have so many commitments right now that I'm not sure I could do it justice, but it's, it's something I just, I loved doing and I loved meeting people through it. I loved getting close to people through it and just, just showcasing what amazing people were doing in their communities. I mean, I am having that experience with this show a little bit. Right. Like, like even getting, like, I have an excuse to catch up with you, to spend mm -hmm. this time with you, to, to see right. you, to like, and, 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 and then there's people that I probably wouldn't make the opportunity to connect with had I not had this and like to kind of sit and process and talk about things that matter and that are important. And, and so maybe it's on hiatus, but I'm, I'm, I'm uh, excited to see it return and I'm, I'm excited to hear that that's something you might want to do. And hopefully even sitting down mm -hmm. today and going, yeah, I blocked out a couple hours to have a conversation and it's as easy as that, right? That right. I could upload a video. So maybe live might add a la layer of difficulty, although I guess we could be streaming this. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then even just ripping the audio, making it available as a podcast or whatever, right. but that's, yeah, it's just, I'm really excited to see him, see him return. So that's, that's exciting to Thank hear. You. It might be in the, it might be in the works at some point. Um, so you've said at several points, um, okay, wait, I'm falling out of order here. I'm going to, I'm going to circle back to that. I'll remember that. Uh, mm -hmm. you reference your TEDx talk and kind of the stories you tell and connecting with entrepreneurs. I'm curious, are you still in touch with, or do you still know Brenda? Oh my gosh. Yes. 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 So I missed it in the talk. You said the yeah. name super fast of the thing that she started. And it was, I can't remember. I, I couldn't hear it. Like I backed it up several yeah, times. Yeah. What, mm -hmm. and is that, is she still doing that? Is that, and what yeah, was the name of that? Um, so it's Joel Worldwide. Joel, Joel like J O E L. Okay. But there's an apostrophe after the O. Okay. Um, yeah, it's just called Joel Worldware. And oh my gosh, bless, bless Brenda. She is one of the most amazing human spirits I've ever, ever, ever met. She's just mm -hmm. so kind and loving and amazing. Um, so I actually haven't talked to her in a, in a little bit, but okay. I've, I'm friends with her. I'm friends with her son, his girlfriend her husband like the, the whole package basically um but they're all wonderful and she was oh my gosh um her, her story is just incredible i mean this she was quite young when she was um kidnapped by someone she was in a very you know unfortunate human trafficking incident and it was just just hearing that story you know from her i was just 
so moved and she took that trauma and that experience and started helping victims by being a volunteer with those types of you know campaigns and initiatives and just felt like she wasn't doing enough at a systemic level and so she she just retired i think maybe a year a year and a half ago from the military mm. and she um had been to afghanistan she'd been to a lot of places around the world where a lot of women were their everyday life was in in her experience it what she had experienced um with that incident was what they lived through every single day and she just felt so strongly about it and wanting to you know make an impact on that systemic level she started creating these partnerships with all these women um refugees all like you know lots of disenfranchised and marginalized groups and started bringing their crafts their products their you know textiles all these things to america and started selling them to american customers so these traders were making so much more than they ever could you know in their um communities and and she was you know giving it all back like she was it was just um yeah she's she's such a wonderful person and i yeah it's you would oh my gosh you you would love her <laughs> yeah well maybe her just coming up will be a good chance to be like was thinking about you touch base and mm-hmm. honestly if she's still at it i i would i would love right. to talk to her and hear her story yeah you know? um it, i was really mm-hmm. intrigued as you shared it kind of in your in your TEDx right yeah I mean I you know I spoke with her before it and she was okay and you know obviously (laughs) but yeah now uh so one of the things this is what I was going to say before but I wanted to kind of address Mm -hmm. that since we were on the topic but the um you've mentioned at several points like what you know when what you hope for someone to get out of college what they're doing in college when they develop Mm -hmm. and you wrote a book for students Mm -hmm. going into college it's called you got this right yeah um (laughs) And I am, so I, I have a copy of it. I haven't read every single page of it, but I have definitely gone through it enough to be like pretty familiar with kind of the tools you're offering and what you're going there. Mm-hmm. But for those that aren't interested or aren't interested, aren't aware, <laughs> for those that are not aware of it um, and maybe are in that place or have a son or daughter that are off to college, mm-hmm. like I would love to hear just, will you just share about the book, what inspired you to write it, kind of what tools you're offering there. And just for those that, might be interested in picking up a copy. Sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for mentioning that. And oh my gosh, that was one of my that like that that experience that of going through the process of writing a book and then realizing that there were so many more steps in the process. (laughs) It's a big deal. Like no matter what happens after that, like good work. Right. It's a big deal. it's a whole thing, but oh my gosh. Um, so what inspired me to write it? That, it, it actually started off really um, in, a, in a weird way. So this was right when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do after university. So I think it was my second year of university and I was like, I, you know, I need to start thinking about what I want to do after this. And I was like, I really enjoy public speaking and I think that's something that I want to continue doing. But at that age, people are going to pay you for very few things. Like there's not a lot of things you can claim to be an expert. We speak for free. Yeah. (laughs) Right. That's right. 
so so I was like okay like you know what are some ways that I could try to monetize this you know and I talked to someone who's a published author and I was like hey like you know this is I want to you know be a speaker like you and do you have some thoughts on you know what I could possibly do and this person was like you should write a book and I was like cool that's also something I've been thinking about but now the question is what should I write about because this was you know I was still involved with social entrepreneurship and I could have you know written that but I just I didn't feel like I I could reasonably establish authority in in that um in that world yeah I think and and I'm so glad that I chose to not do that because my understanding of social entrepreneurship now is so much deeper than it was when I was writing that book. So I'm really glad I didn't do that. But um, so anyway, uh, I realized that, you know, the best thing for me to do would, uh, would be to talk about my experience at university, especially coming from the perspective of an international student. Of, and I think international students have a very similar experience to a first generation students in the US. Mm-hmm. So those were basically the two demographics I was targeting. And the book is um, divided into three parts. So the first part is personal development. The second part is very specific, like academic success type stuff. And then the third is personal, de- uh, it's professional development. Mm-hmm. And the way I, the, the analogy that I've used throughout the book is when you get on a plane, right? When you're packing to get on that, on that trip, you have this whole checklist of things you need. You need So there's a pre-flight checklist almost in the mm-hmm. book, which is like, okay, these are the different things, you know, you should consider. These are the things you need, you know, um, what you should pack, just things like that. Then it's like you're getting ready for the takeoff. When you're getting ready for takeoff, there are simple things you need to do, right? Fasten your seatbelt. You need to um, make sure your you know, tray table is in the correct position, things like that. And I think of that as a very like personal thing. Like you have to do all these things to yourself mm-hmm. before you can actually be in the flight, right? And so that, um, that, that preparation for takeoff is the personal development. I don't think a student can truly come out of university saying that they're successful, quote unquote if they haven't worked on themselves at university. Mm-hmm. Like we talked about earlier, and you mentioned how your experience was all about like learning how to think critically, mm-hmm. analyzing the world, understanding the different systems that we operate in. If you don't do that work of understanding the world, understanding you, yourself, you can graduate university with a 4.0 GPA and still yeah. not have a clue how to actually live, work, play in the real world I just don't think it's possible and so I really like that was such a big part of my university experience was personal development and like understanding who I am understanding what are my interests what am I good at what am I not good at what do I not like and I really really hope that students do that that they really try to focus on themselves during university because the academic success is great and all but the only way to sustain academic success and, and have that translate into the real world is if you've done that, that personal development first. Um, 
So the second part is, you know, standard academic success stuff. Like I, I even talk about, you know, things like where in the classroom should you sit? How should you, you know, talk to your professors? Like just, it's, it's very specific academic stuff. Very practical. Um, yep. Right, exactly. And then the third part is on professional development, which was also something I'm just, I'm so passionate about because one of my on-campus jobs at the University of Tampa was, I was part of the career services um, team. And I would basically sit down with students and help them talk through what they wanted to get out of their professional experience. I was giving talks on um, job set strategies to the university, you know, different students. Um, I was reviewing CVs, I was reviewing uh, cover letters, all this stuff. And I was like, you know, like the university like trained me in that. And it was just something that my friends would come to me about and they were like, you know, how do I get started? Like, what, what is, what is the, the basic thing I need to know about a cover letter? What are like the this, this small things I need to know about a resume that won't just get rejected? You know, it'll, it'll at least get a second glance. And so a lot of those um, things are in that professional development. It's, it's, not, it's not professional development from the perspective of like, you know, any and every person that's looking for employment. It's very much catered to what are the first things that university students need to know that that first resume, that first networking event, it's your, your LinkedIn profile. Like, you know, those, those basic things that I think not enough students are well-versed in. That's and right. that's why they're not able to get the opportunities that they've worked so hard for. It's, it's, it's those small things that I think small incremental changes that they can make and find success in that sense. It's, it's such a good tool. And especially like you said, like I think college students in general, but then like the specific, like kind of international student and, and, and by the way, even just here in Tampa, like being next mm -hmm. to USF, I'm like, that's such a large population every year as students are coming in. And I just think, you know, I'm, I'm hoping you're, you're selling, selling some books, but at the same time, I'm like, man, I, you know, even talking about it now, I'm like making a mm -hmm. note to myself, like, I want to make a point of putting this in a few people's hands that are in the right positions in the right clubs in the right, like mm -hmm. the, because it seems like just an asset that should be put into the hands of so many students that are coming in that like, it just, it's a great, it's a great guide and resource. And mm -hmm. um, so yeah, if I can ever be helpful, or anyone listening can no, be helpful in helping to kind of promote that that book mm -hmm. it's like you put in all that work and now there's this really rich resource and product that right. that is so practical so easy to kind of walk through and be like all right here's where i'm at in the process and like mm -hmm. I, i'm just hoping we you know that continues to do well and kind of get in the hands Thank of students you. that maybe can serve <laughs> them for generations to come um is there anything in hindsight like that mm -hmm. you look back and go like if you were to write an appendix today, yeah, there's something you're yeah. like, man, here's the thing now, later right. that I'm like, I would yeah. have to offer. So I think the biggest thing that I did not talk about was how to figure out like your next academic step, because mm -hmm. I just wasn't there yet. I did, kind of I knew I wanted to go yeah. to graduate school, right? I, I knew I wanted to, but I wasn't in that process it was very hard for me to speak to it so that's a big one i think that i would talk about um because now that i've you know been through that process i mean 
granted my experience is still re relatively limited because I only applied to two universities um, mm -hmm. one in the US one in the UK but I think you know um, being in a university like like Oxford I can speak to that experience and I can give some guidance um, mm. on that as well and I think the second thing I I don't think I I, I, I don't think I knew much about mental health from a personal experience at the time. And I think that is a big one that I would talk about, especially, you know, things like imposter syndrome, which I don't think most people talk about. I think we hear a lot about anxiety and depression and stress right now, but I don't think we still, I, I, I think, yeah, I think imposter syndrome is a big one that I would talk about. For, well, would you talk about it for just a minute? Like for someone listening that maybe doesn't yeah. know what you're talking about or like what? Yeah, mm -hmm. for sure. So imposter syndrome, I, I want to say it's not uh, in the DSM, which is the main manual for psychologists. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's in there, but culturally it's, it's become a very um, prevalent psychological issue for a lot of people that um, maybe they didn't start out always being like this successful type person, this very academic person and in that context, a successful business person, just people from backgrounds that, that aren't aligned with what they are right now or how, how um, successful, I guess, you know, for the lack of a better word, but like, it, it's just that, you're in a in a space surrounded by people who you believe totally deserve to be there and you just don't feel like you deserve to be among those people you are constantly filled with feelings of like oh i'm just i i'm here you know by mistake or i'm only here because of this one thing that is so trivial about me but somehow you know i managed to cheat the system and and make it here instead of realizing that it is your story it is your background that shaped you into the person that does belong in these spaces and places so that'll all be in um you you got this one also the, the follow-up <laughs> on graduate school we can, we can look forward to that um so i know we don't have a ton of time left i do want to mm -hmm. ask you about your experience currently with this whole pandemic situation mm -hmm. over the last several months like how is that a, how is that how's that been for you in your own context at the school at um you know what i think for most of us it's been a a lot of rich reflection grew out of this like when you mm -hmm. stop kind of what you're doing a lot of our habits became conscious we got to look at like right. what we were normally doing I'm just curious i'd love to hear you kind of like just share about like what's been going on with you recently how have you been dealing yeah. with all this? Like, just, yeah, talk to me about what's been going yeah, on. Sure. Uh, it's been weird because this whole thing kind of started right at the end of my previous term. So at Oxford, we have three terms and all the lockdowns and restrictions started literally like the day after our term ended. So we were supposed to be on break anyway. But I think the, the biggest effect, like, I think the biggest negative effect this has had on me was Oxford's a very, very strenuous environment. It is hard. It is intense. It is the type of place where at the end of the term, 
you just want to take a break. Yeah. And because my coping mechanisms, especially for the health, for my mental health, are typically traveling to, you know, outside my city, which, whichever city it may be, it is really like traveling to, you know, even just going to the next city over, you know, and that's something I can't do. I was thinking about seeing my family, seeing my friends, not something I can do. So in that sense, it was quite hard because yeah. the only way I knew how to help myself was a way I couldn't mm-hmm. engage in. Um, but other than that, I think, actually, I, I was talking to one of my friends here and they, they said something really interesting because this whole time has been like, oh, Oxford's so quiet and silent without all the tourists and the students. It's, it's so weird. And, you know, I was just like, almost like negative associations with how the city is right now. But this, this friend was talking about how special it is that we get to experience Oxford without all that. And it's like something not a lot of people can say they've ever experienced with Mm -hmm. Oxford because 365 days of the year, there are tourists, there are students. It's never a place where you can just walk around and the streets are empty you feel like this this whole place is yours almost you're like I'm I'm one of the very few people that get to experience something like that and that my my friend saying that really changed my perspective on that and and it's really what I'm trying to focus on now especially because the weather's so nice and instead of thinking about how I can't see my friends or whatever it's like yeah, but I can see parts of the city that are typically too busy and too crowded, so I couldn't see them. Yeah, isn't it interesting how a little perspective can really change the thing from like, I don't know, down or depressive to mm-hmm. grateful and rich even, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I want to travel and see another city, but in some sense, you're in another city. Like the city you've mm-hmm. been in is another city <laughs> in this condition right? Exactly. It's it, the state of it has completely transformed. And it's like, mm-hmm. you're, you, you, there's no need to travel. You can explore your own kind of home and terrain. And um, any, any other things kind of come up in, I don't know, the, in your own psyche and your own like experience with all this, if not totally cool, we're going to like make anything up. I'm just curious. I know for <laughs> me, I'm like, this has just been overwhelmingly rich with reflection Mm. for me kind of throughout the process just watching myself react to what's happening and right you know I mean to be honest in some ways I've really enjoyed what's happening Mm -hmm. because there's some not just like oh a positive frame of mind but something temperamental like Mm -hmm. I like the especially early on like the more chaotic the more like engaging I'm like this is awesome (laughs) Like I like shifting <laughs> sand, you know, something right. up in me. Like you talked about being in your element. I'm like, this is my element. Mm-hmm. Like it's rapid decision-making and, you yeah. know, adapting. But I'm, I'm just curious if anything like emerged where you're like, oh, I, I learned something about myself in this, or I, mm-hmm. I noticed something in my habits in this. Yeah. Um, I think maybe my, j- just how I think about contribution. I think that's, that's one of the things that has changed for me and how I can kind of almost adapt how I contribute to society to different situations. So 
before this whole thing happened, I was planning um, a policy hackathon event. And it was supposed to be this physical event, you know, like I've, I've organized so many physical events before, never done a policy hackathon, but it was about all about, you know, getting the community together, bringing in students, bringing in local community members, and thinking about the challenges in Oxford and addressing them. And I was very excited to do it. And then I realized, you know, that was not very, um, in the foreseeable future, it was not going to happen that way. And so we had to make a decision, which was either we just don't do this, or we pivot to something that can be done in this environment. And to me, it was, I, I felt like, and I, I actually you know, made a video about the event, um, and I talked about this a little bit, but I, I felt like I couldn't contribute to the efforts and the responses to the pandemic because I'm not a doctor. And then I realized like doctors are super valuable, nurses, all you know, medical health professionals are super important in this, but it doesn't mean that other people are not. Mm-hmm. And I think I bring in a skill set where I can bring in, you know, stakeholders from different backgrounds together. I can bring in people from different backgrounds together. I think that's one of those things that I, I know I can do well. And that's one way that I can contribute. And so instead of defining contribution in the sense that it has to be this physical event and it has to be a certain way, it's like, no, I can contribute no matter what the situation is. I just have to find that, that like the way how I can make that happen, if that makes sense. No, it makes a ton of sense. And I saw the video. I saw that you were doing that. It's really exciting. I can't say I fully can picture a policy hackathon mm-hmm. personally, <laughs> uh, but I, I did see your post about it. Um, in fact, I think that's the post that initiated me reaching out to mm-hmm. you. Is I think that's the post that popped right. up. And, but even your friend pointing out to you something valuable in the context of Oxford being vacated mm-hmm. is contribution pers- mm-hmm. a contribution to perspective and I, and I think you're right. right I think it's important to be able to like I mean even back to the imposter syndrome and things where we feel mm-hmm. like we don't have something to give um, and yet or we, we're not good enough or like this tracks right. with so much of the you know people told me I wasn't good enough or I can't do mm-hmm. this or this rules in place but like to know like I'm valuable I want to offer value, even the way that you framed writing the book, I thought was really good. You're like, well, I could talk about this thing that I love, but I'm not an authority in this. This is only maybe slightly valuable to a few people, whatever, but, but I have like a rich experience that's fairly unique coming from another country to college here. And I can Mm -hmm. offer a tremendous amount of value in this and finding, I don't know, just saying like, finding what is most valuable to offer and then making that offering yourself as a gift, your voice as a gift and contribution. And it, it being defined or shaped by the needs, right? Like often, I mean, this is often true in working with the poor. So, I mean, this is like the major error made in like development work ministry, people mm-hmm. working with the poor is you come to like, I see that you don't have X, So I'm going to meet this need rather than asking you, 
what you want, right? What you hope for, like you define your circumstances and you define your hope for outcomes. And I might be able to offer myself as a friend mm -hmm. in relationship to be of some value to you. Right. And, and, and in that way, it's like, it's interesting. Like that's a change in thought about contribution. Like, Oh, you don't have yeah. this here. Now you have this. I, <laughs> I contributed that and I saved the day. Right. As opposed to like, which is like a toxic form of charity or contribution, which yeah. often is the case. Right. Whereas you say like, no, I'm, I'm listening to what's going on, exploring right. what's within me, how I can be of assistance mm -hmm. in the circumstances. I think it's almost narcissistic to feel like you know everything and you know what people need better than they know it themselves. Like, I think it's so much of big charity and, yeah. you know, like this big philanthropy movement is, is like that. And that's, again, another reason why I love social entrepreneurship so much because it's more focused on empowering these local communities to take charge of their mm -hmm. problems, provide them with the right trainings and resources, but not, you know, doing it for them or bringing in, you know, outside people to do something for them. It's like, no, these communities, like they, they have self-worth, they have this, this sense of like, they want to do something for themselves and for their communities. And I think to take that opportunity away from them for the sake of like, oh, we're, but we're, we can do it better, you know? I think that's such a narcissistic, worldview you are such a joy to talk to i i i, <laughs> I actually might want to ask you have you on regularly you're so you're <laughs> such a joy i'm so glad we got an opportunity to catch up uh for for those that are listening before we go are are there things that you want to highlight ask for encourage people to do where can they find you just kind of like have your way now like with whatever you know you might want to ask of people point them to to buy your book, come find you somewhere mm -hmm. like what? Yeah. Talk to them. Well, I think the biggest, biggest way that people can contribute to anything that I'm doing is usually to just look me up on LinkedIn. That's the only social media I use now. Um, and I typically post about what, you know, whatever big project I'm working on. If you would like to learn more about the book, uh, you can go to Amazon or Barnes and Nobles and on their website, they have the book. It's You Got This. And if you type my name, J-U-H-I-K-O-R-E, you will be able to find it. Um, <laughs> I think in terms of what I would like to ask people to, to do, really do would be to identify what are some ways you feel like you can con contribute whether that's to your local community your national community or just bigger causes or organizations that you 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 really strike a chord with and you feel like you know you believe in their mission and their ability to make a positive difference i think not everyone needs to be an entrepreneur not everyone needs to start their own thing but i do think we can all find joy and meaning in our lives by contrib contributing. And I would absolutely encourage people to do that because regardless of what work looks like, what family looks like, I think you know, if, if you're not finding meaning in those areas of your life, you can always find meaning by helping other people, taking care of the planet and just believing and, and acting upon something bigger than yourself. 
So wow, man, thank you. And wow, wow, that's such a phenomenal place to end. I'm going to kick myself if I don't ask you something I just thought of. So I'm going to, so if you're okay for a few more minutes, I want to ask you about something you said earlier. And I, I turned the page on my notes and I totally forgot the future of work. I know this yeah. is no small topic, but the future of work, <laughs> the idea you said something about like becoming obsolete. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine you're referring to just the, the advancement of AI and automation mm-hmm. and things like that, that will replace many, many, many things that people do as careers like driving right. and whatever else. Um, but I wanted to circle back to that. It's a huge conversation. Maybe one will have an entire thing dedicated to at some point, mm-hmm. like you and I could talk again, but I yeah. did, I, I, I'm going to kick myself the rest of the day. If I don't <laughs> circle back and ask you before we get off. <laughs> Oh, um, so I guess, I guess my thoughts on the, on the topic are, I come from an academic perspective and I, I believe in the value of data, the value of science, and there is so little evidence for how things are going to play out. And most certainly about the timeline that things are going to play out in. So I'm not, you know, going to sit here and say, oh, we're going to you know, you and I in our lifetimes, we're going to have no work to do, you know, in a few years. Like, I, I don't claim to know that's real. I don't claim to, yep. you know, think that's a possibility. But I do think that one of the biggest concerns I have with society is we've created these things or we've created these um, systems that we just haven't thought far along about. A big example of that, I think, is social media. I don't think when we started making that such a cultural phenomena, we, we just didn't think far enough. And I think so much negative has come from that. And I just, I just want more people though to think about the future of work, whatever that may mean to them. For me, it means thinking about how are you know, basic things going to be paid for? Who is going to pay for them? How can we have policies that ensure all people get the same, you know, if, if we institute something that's like a universal basic income, how do we ensure that people aren't disadvantaged because of their socioeconomic status from before this was um, instituted? I mean, it's, it's so much about equality and equity, especially equity. And one of the things that I'm most passionate about, I think, in the context of technology and global politics is giving a voice to the countries that have been kept out of that conversation for so long, whether that's in the context of autonomous weapons, whether that's in the context of what algorithms are used by social media companies that are based, you know, in one country, but are operating across the world and how, you know, how that affects the everyday people, because I think that's just where, you know, when, when people are making the next version of Facebook, right, they're not thinking about this random teenager in Venezuela. They're just not. But everything that they're creating is going to have a very direct impact on that person's life. Mm-hmm. And I think that having that, um, larger picture in mind and having some semblance of like like a policy or just 
almost like you know a handbook of like the, when, if you're creating something amazing like just just at least think about these things you know you shouldn't just be able to create something with no sense of consequences you know it's just that to me is, is very scary because if we don't have those things in place you know in, in if anyone was was to create something with today's technology we have laws and policies that govern those things but we don't really have anything focused on the future and there's a small but growing movement of people that are working on those things and i i hope i'm able to contribute to to that conversation because i think going back to you know people from certain countries not having a voice at that table i think i can represent some of those views um and i i look forward to having the opportunity to do that yeah, that's, um, it's really interesting. I mean, even the idea, so there's kind of two topics in there. The idea of work, I mean, yeah, to be honest, this show came into existence. This podcast came into mm -hmm. existence. I taught a class um, for a local like church community. It was like a mm -hmm. summer school class. So I did it over several weeks. Oh. It, was, it was called work and creation. And it, what it was, was like looking at, so it was, it was a Christian setting, looking at the kind of narrative mm -hmm. of scripture and the idea okay. being like the, 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 maybe the theological framework being like work is a gift from God. Mm. It, it isn't some consequence of something terrible that it is something you you're built to do something hard, to do something with purpose, to sacrifice for yeah. something. And so we developed this. Um, and, and, and one, I realized, man, I love this conversation. I love having the conversation uh, around work. I, because I work with so many people without employment and I've right. for years been saying, yeah, but you need to work. Like, let's go work in the garden. Let's work on this, that, or the other. It doesn't need to be a job, but you need responsibility, mm -hmm. right? That's part of freedom. Like you need right. those things. Well, what, what alarms me in the idea of automation and that, which I'm, so to be like forthright, I'm super excited mm -hmm. about most technological development. I'm like, this is awesome. Like people right. are like, That's scary, but I'm like, yeah, those, the, the Luddites were saying that like, we're, mm -hmm. we're going to figure things out, but there's not going to be truck drivers. It's game over. Like if you're a truck driver, you need to start studying something else, right? right? Like figure something else out. It's just a matter of time. Like you said, is it five years, 10 years? I don't know, but it's coming and we can right. see that playing out inevitably. But like, even right now with the pandemic mm -hmm. and going, there's a lot of people without work immediately. And, and, and that's the thing is to me, why I wanted to have these conversations mm -hmm. was to try to divorce the idea that of work and employment, that mm -hmm. like work is something I'm paid to do. It's like, I work on, I work on being a better guitar player or I work on being a better right. spouse, or I could work on be, you know, you mm -hmm. work out or whatever you work, like you work on lots of stuff, right? Your relationships and those kind of things, mm -hmm. psyche and therapy, self-work, all of that. And I wanted to like prop up work as something valuable, but, but knowing full well, a lot of people are not going to have employment. And I've known so many people, like how deadly mm -hmm. it can be to not have work, to not right. have employment, and then to not have something meaningful to do, to engage in, to sink their teeth into. So saying something like work becoming obsolete is a, is a mm -hmm. horror picture. Like I'm like, that's horrifying, right? And it's why I want to talk to people and say like, hey, you still got to work on something even if right. you make it up or you figure something out like right. work on your art or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, and just anyway, just to kind of respond to that. And I know there's, that's a deep enough conversation that we might have to like leave it for another day. Cause <laughs> there's so much right. to go into. 
Um, I even have someone just handed me this book. I haven't even dug into it yet, but men without work, but this is like, oh. a, this is a, this is a topic that I just keep scratching at. I'm just like getting right. more, more fascinated, like, and, and related to the future of work and like what's coming. Mm-hmm. I'm interested in the social media thing you said, cause you're, you're, you're speaking around like, so the development of tech. But just, and, just before we pivot yep, to yep, that, yep, yep, yep. Um, I just wanted to add like what, what you said, like the way you, um, situated the future of work and the meaning of work in the context of well what does work you know why does work just have to be the professional side of things I think that in terms of you know what we talked about education about changing the narrative on so many of these concepts that we've grown up with and for generations the world has has created and built a world around I think that's you know like entrepreneurship should be all about impact I think work should not just be about professional work and yeah. not just about you know uh financial success like it, it really should just be about meaning and impact and that can take so many forms and so many shapes in, and propped in up as valuable right because it's well exactly. the misunderstanding is potentially deadly mm-hmm. like we conflate these things and we see the end of them and go you can't live <laughs> without that and it's coming to an end the way you understand it exactly which is going to kill you if we can't get ahead of this, right? If we can't script this properly or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious around the question of policy, social media. Um, I mean, you use that as an example, but I'm, I'm, I'm assuming right. that applies to the development of technology and automation and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, like going, hey, like this is the role of the like ethicist in automation, right? Like the, the philosophers mm-hmm. being hired by people that are developing automated vehicles, things like that going like, all of a sudden the trolley car thing that we did in our ethics 101 <laughs> matters more than ever because you're going to program a computer to make those mm-hmm. decisions. Right. Um, what I, I mean, like, I'm curious if there's something to point to, I mean, even in our own news here in the United States, you hear all yeah. these people railing against something like TikTok, right? So you've got this social media platform. They're like, it's a company in China and we're all using it. And we're, and, and, and I don't know what to make of all of that. Although I think mm-hmm. it's a super cool platform. Like it's just fun in comparison <laughs> to the others. Right? It's like dancing and joyful uh, and yeah. or whatever. But, but that's the kind of stuff you're talking about, right? Is like getting out ahead of these things and kind of putting some guardrails right. up for the places we're going. Yeah. Um, in a sense, definitely that. I think that it, the the problem really comes where with the lack of transparency right like if tiktok was to actually tell people what they were doing with all the data yeah. that they were mining mm-hmm. i don't know how many people would use it you know mm-hmm. i just think that lack of transparency i mean we've seen that i mean zoom for example a year ago was in so much hot water because people realized that the terms and conditions included them being able to listen in on every conversation, even if the app wasn't open and like you went on a call, like they could at any point, like hear things, you know, and it's like they fixed it. And that's mm-hmm. why now it's such a big deal. And we're using Zoom right now. Yep. Um, but it's just, it, it's one of those things where if people really know what's going on, oh. I'm not sure how many people would still use those those products? And I think we, I, 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 I definitely believe in free enterprise. And I, and, you know, I think businesses should be able to make money, do, you know, things in this world. But 
I, I think that we've made some of those conversations all about those rights instead of the individual's rights. And I mm -hmm. think trying to find a balance between those is something we're really going to have to work on, especially knowing what types of technologies are in the works or that are, you know, being implemented right now. It's probably no news to you, although to me it was. Did you see or listen to, um, so Joe Rogan interviewed Elon Musk the other day. It was a second I, interview oh, with okay. him. And he started talking about some of the neural net stuff that they're working on and these implants. And, mm -hmm. and as he talked, it's so crazy. Like um, just at the broadest of brushstrokes, like at some point he talked about, he's like AI, like at the speed and rate it's developing and what it's, he's like already your computer, your phone, it thinks so much faster than you in certain ways. Like you can't do math like it. You can't compute at that yeah. processing speed. And mm -hmm. the interface is like at the speed of your thumbs or whatever. He's like, it's very slow. He's like, it needs to get faster. And he's like, and the way that it's going to get faster is through implant, right? Like in your cortex, in your brain. Right. And, and, he's, and he's like, look, it's going to get to the point. So basically he's like, the processing speed of AI talking to you will be like you talking to a tree. Like you don't talk to trees. There's no point in talking to a tree. And he's like, mm -hmm. so the only way for us mankind to participate in where this is going is to symbiote is to find symbiosis right. by yeah. implant it was the most it's crazy because it's the most sci-fi type thing to listen to yet being talked about someone who's like we'll be putting the first one in someone within a year <laughs> right and and it's like oh good god and then you start talking about like what you're talking about. I was like, yeah, are there guardrails for that? Do we know right. what potentially could come of that? Because it really is like a, anything is possible at that point. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, a lot of, a lot of um, people that are, that, that are creating like, you know, autonomous vehicles, for yep. example, yep. The, the question is if the car makes the wrong move, whose fault is it? Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, if you input a device in someone's brain and something goes wrong, yeah. did the person waive their right when, you know, did, did they know all the possible risks? Did, could you even have known all the possible risks right. while completing that operation? I think, you know, surgeons, for example, now, for most standard operations, they know exactly what outcomes can you know, come out of it because they've done this so many times. But if this is the first bionic operation ever, yeah. we don't know how many ways it could go wrong. Yeah. And how do you, you know, who's to blame? What, to, to what extent has the person taken this upon themselves? Because, you know, it's going to be volunteers that sign up for these things. It, it's, it's, I think on an individual basis, this may not seem like a big deal, but the the more we develop on these technologies, right, it's going to just be a large scale thing. And yeah, it's going to exponentially increase, right? Exactly. In its, in its ubiquity and whatever. Well, yeah. I I I can 
So my temptation is to geek out with you on this for another eight hours, <laughs> but, but for the sake of the time we set, I, yeah. I, won't, I won't keep doing that, but thank you so much for your time. It's so good to see you. Um, and by the way, I, I hope you, I hope you do check that interview out. I'd love to hear what you yes. think about it, but you and I mm -hmm. offline, let's just keep up. I'm, I'm, Absolutely. I'm a big fan. Aww. Thank you so much for taking some time with me today. And Thank I, you for look, having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. I look forward to connecting with you again sometime soon. Absolutely. Take care. All right. You too. Be good. Hey, real quick before you go. Um, I just, first of all, want to thank you for listening to this show at all. Thank you for tuning in. Um, hopefully it's been of value to you. And the fact that you've listened to the end of this episode is extremely encouraging. So thank you. If you would uh, do me a favor and help support the show by, first of all, subscribing to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. If you would share maybe an episode that was of particular meaning to you with a friend or two or maybe on your social media platform. If you would maybe leave uh, some feedback in the form of a review, I would be super grateful for that. Um, just so you know, there are on, uh, on YouTube, if you look up the work ethic, I think actually the channel is Johnny Produce 59. Um, if you look that up, you can actually see some of the videos of some of the Zoom calls that some of the most recent podcasts were done on. I try to make those available there if you're interested in maybe seeing as well. Um, and anyway, yeah, just thank you so much. Oh, one last thing at the workethicpodcast.com, which is basically just a link tree. There's a link there. I believe it's at the top where it says, join the conversation and you can click that button and simply leave a voice recording from your phone. Um, I don't know what the time cutoff on that is, so let's find out. But if you want to be on the show, if you want to maybe answer the question, what is success? If you want to talk to a specific topic that has come up or a theme that has emerged in the different shows, if you want to offer input into this project that is maybe a, a journey of developing a, a theory or a philosophy of work and its role and meaning in our lives, I want to invite you to do that. Um, also, if you have any particular people that you think would be an amazing guest to interview or someone to talk to from really any vocation or any field, uh, don't hesitate to, you can leave it there as a voice message or you can message us at, well, at any, at the work ethic, at any social media platform, just find us on there and shoot us a quick message. And we would be super grateful for all of that engagement. Um, really appreciate you listening and uh, really appreciate you supporting the show. Thank you.